Good morning. You're tuned into KBBI Homer AM 890 and in Seward on K201AO 88.1 FM. It is three minutes after nine o'clock. You're listening to The Coffee Table here on KBBI. I'm your host, Josh Crone. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning. And I have with me in the studio guests from Homer's new charter school program, the Homer Forest School. I have with me in the studio Case Sturm. Did I get that name correct? Yes. Very good. And uh, Dave Kaufman. Hi. Hi. Thank you both for coming in and uh, speaking with us this morning. So a new charter school in Homer, that's, uh, that's an exciting thing. Uh, increases our opportunities for, uh, for education here on the Lower Peninsula. And uh, this one's a little bit different from your typical uh, uh, public school offering. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into that here uh, in a little bit, uh, but I just want to go over some of the details for the charter, the charter itself. So the charter has been uh, submitted to the district, and uh, has it been accepted? We don't know about that yet? It's in process. It's in process, okay. And uh, what, is the, uh, what is the timeline for approval on that, do we know? So we submitted our first draft of our application at the end of September, and the uh, school board and the district have a big process for uh, getting that application ready to go to the state, who is the ultimate approver of the application. Mm -hmm. And so we're in revision process. We actually presented to the full school board on Monday at their work session, and we'll be going back to committee, uh, to the Charter Oversight Committee, uh, for hopefully one more session to finalize our revisions and take in con into consideration their feedback. Um, and our hopes are to be able to uh, present to the school board at their December 5th meeting. So that's the local school board in Soldotna. Excellent. Uh, okay, and uh, let me just go ahead and touch base with you on uh, your involvement in the process. Uh, for, for both of you, what, uh, what roles do you play in organizing this program? Sure, uh, I'll jump in. Um, so I am a educator and I'm a former middle school and high school teacher. I have a teaching certification in special education. I also have a doctorate in education where I focused on project-based learning and building meaningful experiences in, uh, in classrooms. And I am uh, also a mother of a two-year-old who won't be in school just yet, but it's, uh, it's all connected. Um, and I got involved in this process uh, because I work uh, closely with charter schools in Hawaii and Anchorage and around the country, doing a lot of work in building up uh, strong, sustainable systems that support student-centered learning and meaningful experiences for students. And locally here, uh, my son started going to Tiny Trees, which is an early childhood program. Um, and Tiny Trees is a forest school program where a lot the students spend or the children spend a lot of the day outside. And uh, I've always had a personal connection to loving the outdoors and learning to love the outdoors in my adult life. And it's been really incredible to watch the children uh, who, you know, a lot of them are younger than five years old, interact with nature in a way that is just um, setting them up for learning experiences that you know, I've never seen even as a classroom teacher. And so I was able to kind of merge my two worlds of education, having been a classroom teacher, working in charter schools with this um, desire that I was seeing from the community um, and families to uh, create a similar program that would be public school accessible for uh, students in our community. Excellent. And um, I am involved here primarily as a parent and community member. I do have some uh, 
teaching background, high school art. Um, but I have two kids as well, uh, seven and uh, almost five-year-old, and they were also enrolled in Hannah Young's uh, early childhood tiny trees uh, forest school program. And uh, similarly, we, we just saw how they came alive and how um, it could be done. And um, I was just part of the group that got uh, swept along and, and have gotten to this point to, to move it into a new realm of a public option. Very good. And uh, I do want to invite our uh, listeners to uh, join our conversation this morning. If you'd like to give us a call and ask us any questions, you can call 907-235-7721. You can also send an email to me, josh at kbbi.org, and I'll get that question on air for you. Uh, let's talk about the mission for the Homer Forest School. What is the purpose? What does it do? So I can share, uh, so our vision as a school is a school where an outdoor environment is a classroom for all students, and learning ignites a sense of wonder, stewardship, and curiosity. So we're really trying to prioritize the outdoors as the primary place where students can learn and thrive as students in school, and we balance that with the, the indoor aspect of the school as well, which we can share more about later. Um, our mission is HFS is an environment in which the majority of learning happens away from screens and in the outdoors and engages students in meaningful experiences, rigorous academics, and authentic projects grounded in the community. Community collaboration is a really important aspect of our school program as well, and we'd love to share more about that as we get further into the conversation. Okay. So uh, outdoors seems to be a primary uh, uh, theme for the Forest School. Tell me a little bit more about that. So outdoor learning, is there, uh, is there a classroom or is there a building? There will be buildings. We're currently working on that. Um, but the way that the application is structured um, is striving for 70% of the academic day taking place outdoors. Um, and... That's mixed in with indoor blocks of time as well to uh, make sure that we're meeting state standards for things like reading and math, which are a little difficult to do in the outdoors, but can be done. Um, but really, um, the goal is to find ways to access education during those outside blocks. Okay. Uh, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. That's... So uh, a mentor of mine and a former, former principal that I had, actually, she used to say all the time that how we enact our values is how we spend our time. And so as a group, we really started with the daily schedule. And if the outdoors is part of the value that we are trying to instill in students, then that schedule had to reflect that. And so that's where that percentage came in, that 70% um, for the week. That's our aim, our strive. We strive for that, you know, given the outdoor elements, weather, student needs. We take all that into consideration. Um, the two primary learning blocks that happen, uh, the, fir the first is outdoors when learning. And that happens for about 170 minutes of the day. And that's where uh, students engage in inquiry and exploration through a project-based model, a project-based format. And projects allow student questions to sort of guide the learning, but they are connected to learning goals. They're grounded in state uh, standards, and they have really strong assessments and performance tasks where students can see what they're learning, how they're learning, and how they're growing as students. Um, and then the indoor block that Dave mentioned, 
is uh, where students will really focus on foundational skills for the younger students, such as reading foundational skills. Uh, the, uh, and as they get older, you know, that's a great time for small group work, teacher-directed work, um, and for uh, different types of differentiation to be able to happen so students are getting what they need um, on an individual basis. And so we're going to really try to balance those two blocks of learning throughout the day. Okay, very good. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, uh, project-based and uh, also place-based as uh, the foundation for that. We're going to get into that here in a, a little bit on the uh, the show, but I want to go back to uh, uh, the the layout of the day. So uh, parents drop their students off in the morning. Where do they go? Well, they would pull up to our location, um, either by bus uh, or being dropped off, and um, there will be a series of sort of home base areas for the different groups. Um, and our, our model is sort of based on uh, a kindergarten group, a one, two, three, four, and on up like that. Um, so each group has sort of a, a specified outdoor area um, that, you know, is in fully in the outdoors, but is made to be their home base. Um, and that's where they would first go to meet with their teacher. And, um, and then there would also be probably a, a whole school group at some point in the morning there, too. Okay. Go ahead. From home base, they would then go to their uh, their classroom or their their class pods, as we're calling them. So that would be the um, same age or similar age peers. So first and second graders are together. Uh, seventh and eighth graders would be together in our long-term model that we're looking at. Uh, kindergarten would be on its own as a as a single grade level, and that's where their you know academic day really begins and so after home base having that gradual check-in play connection with their multi-age peers they go into that uh, learning block where maybe they go into a reading skills block or they're working on a writing piece from the day before or they're doing some research for their afternoon project and they spend a lot of the day indoor or a lot of the morning uh, block there moving from indoor uh, primarily spending it indoors and then some of it in the outdoors as well but they started their day outside which is really key from there, they would transition into um, play before lunch. So recess, the structure is recess before lunch. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then they would check in with their advisory um, to do more of an academic type of check-in and reflection. You want to talk about the afternoon? Owl. <laughs> um, we, Kay has coined something called the, the owl block, which stands for outdoors while learning. Um, and, and that's kind of the core of what we're after here is um, for the afternoon to be outside um, and engaging with their project-based learning and um, being with their teacher and peers and, and um, doing the work of, of learning as children. Great, thank you. Um, okay, well, hey, let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into the, uh, the project-based curriculum, place-based curriculum. Now, uh, I know that's a, a concept that's becoming a bit more standardized these days, uh, maybe new to some folks. So let's just go ahead and start with an explanation. What is project-based curriculum and, by extension, place-based curriculum? Sure. Uh, so project-based uh, learning is a framework for how learning is carried out. And so Traditionally, and what many of our listeners may have experienced in school as well, projects tend to happen at the end of learning. We learn a lot of information, and then we go and uh, do a two-day project in class, or we present something at the end of a unit. Project-based learning takes that concept of projects and actually 
becomes the vehicle for all of the learning to happen within. And that's really how real life happens, right? It's very authentic, it's very connected to how students will engage with projects and challenges in, in real life outside of school. So in project-based learning, uh, there is typically some kind of question or inquiry that is happening that drives the students to keep asking questions and want to know more about the topic at hand. And those things are planned out ahead of time by teachers, by um, support, you know, a, as a framework for what's going to happen in the coming weeks. Um, students are working typically towards some kind of end goal or end product, but that product is uh, really grounded in different learning goals that they're working towards. So let's say, for example, it's, a, um, it's heavy on the science and the English language arts. Then there might be very clear writing and reading goals and data collection, data analysis, and those types of standards that are woven into the work that they're doing. And so it's very uh, connected to those learning goals as they're moving through the project. Well, tell, tell me a little bit about how that works. So I imagine you say that there's an in inquiry uh, mm -hmm. as, I call it a thesis, basically, something to, to start, the, uh, start you on the path. Mm -hmm. And then there's certain aspects that need to be tied in uh, to that. And there's a, a reading and writing aspect to that. There's going to have to be some uh, uh, learning that goes with that, mm -hmm. some documentation that goes along with that. Uh, how do you pull other academic aspects into that, like mathematics? Yeah, that's a great question. So in their learning block, they might be doing very specific math instruction skills, right? Learning those foundational math skills. But let's say, for example, that they are um, uh, doing something super hands-on that is like an engineering aspect, uh, engineering-based uh, project outside. This is an opportunity now for teachers to be intentional about bringing some of those foundational skills that they're learning in the classroom to actually show them as we're creating this project or as we're doing this project that these things are applicable in the real world. Um, so for example, I'm working with some teachers right now kind of unrelated on a tiny house project where they're trying to tackle um, uh, you know, uh, affordable housing in the community as, a, as an issue of inquiry. And there's an opportunity for the math teacher to bring in um, scaling and ratio and proportions and different standards that he has to teach anyways into this project and kind of bring it to life through the work that they're doing. And so it's, an, it's a way for students to uh, learn the skills and standards that they are going to learn anyways at school, but in a really authentic context. Excellent. Uh, Dave, did you have any more to add on that? Yeah, I would just echo that, you know, the, the part of that that we feel really strongly about is that it's, it's curiosity driven and that when a student is seeking knowledge um, because they're curious about the world, um, that knowledge is going to stick um, in a much better way than just knowledge for knowledge's sake. Great. Uh, let's see. So that's project-based curriculum. Let's uh, move over to place-based curriculum. Sure. Place-based learning uh, is uh, the way in which we want to carry out project-based learning. And so it's not a separate curriculum. It's not a separate you know, way of doing things. But it's a way to ensure that what students are learning is contextual is grounded in community, it's grounded in um, understanding their role and their self within the larger aspect of the world. And so it's a way for students to be their whole self when they come to school, right? Can, can you give me an aspect of how, how you approach that? Sure. Do you want to talk about like a community connection? Or I can take yeah, a, a big part of our, our charter is, is finding partnerships with community organizations and um, finding out what their needs are and how we might fit into that and in involving the students in those things. 
Um, so in that way, you know, we tie to place by being with the community where the children live. Okay, so bringing the, the kids out into the community effectively, uh, partnering with organizations, um, would you, I'm just going to throw some examples out, the museum, uh, mm -hmm. possibly, uh, how would you partner with an organization like that, or Coastal Studies, because you, you already are tied into the Coastal Studies, right? Yeah, we're, we're trying to partner, kind of in, trying to create some bridges between what we typically think of as a school and the amazing wealth of knowledge and expertise that the community has. Right, and so uh, let's use the museum as an example. Typically, students might go on a field trip to the museum, or someone from the museum might come into the classroom to share artifacts. It's very, um, it's very linear in our approach to how school engages with community, and it's an incredible way to engage. To take that to sort of the next level, perhaps students are engaging in a, um, a creating an exhibit of their own, right? Rather than just creating an exhibit, now we have this opportunity to learn from people that do this for their work and as to what actually does it take to curate an exhibit for a specific audience. We also want those community connections to be mutually beneficial because people are busy, right? And um, a lot of our uh, organizations in this town, maybe nonprofits in their, in their own uh, and working really hard day to day. And so we're looking for ways to be able to communicate uh, or connect with community in a really reciprocal way. And that's something that is in our charter and we're striving to do is, uh, as we get more into the program. Excellent. So a, a, a mentorship program almost. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Uh, we well, do have a, uh, our first question from a listener here. Um, uh, this listener would like to know if uh, projects are assigned or self-directed. Do the, the students help choose the path of the curriculum? Take it. That's a really great question. Uh, so our our hope, our, our aim, our proposal is for kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, so over the next a uh, couple years we hope to be able to offer that program and I think when you think about kindergarten through eighth grade that's a big age range and so we are approaching project-based learning in a very scaffolded approach and what that means is that projects in kindergarten might not look the same as they do in seventh and eighth grade but if a student is with us from kindergarten through eighth grade they're going to be building the capacity to do projects over the course of their schooling right and so um, in the beginning of the year projects might be very teacher directed because the, the um, work that's happening there is not just the project, but it's also building those, um, those skills to be able to engage with projects, to ask good questions, to work with your partners, to collaborate, right? So you're building a lot of the, the project management skills that um, will support them through the rest of their life. And then as they get uh, further into the program, projects may become more independent and there may be a lot of opportunities for student questions to kind of drive what, what, what they're doing at school. Excellent. Uh, any more to add on that, Dave? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Moving down my list of questions here. Uh, what location are you looking at for the campus? So right now we are in, in talks and conversation with the Center for Alaska, Alaskan Coastal Studies, um, and we're looking at their skyline location. Um, we are not 100% uh, there with a with a plan, but we have a letter of intent and we have, uh, we're well into those conversations about what that might look like. So at this moment, that's kind of where we are uh, location-wise. Um, currently, uh, the Tiny Trees Early Childhood Program is using uh, the new visitor center space there on Skyline, and that's shown to be a good model. Um, 
our program would have some different requirements. A lot of that is uh, due to, you know, what the school district requires as far as buildings and, and things like that. So we are in conversation with um, the, the school district and with Center for Alaskan Coastal Studies to um, see if we can have all of those needs met uh, at that location. Okay. So the Wind Nature Center up on Skyline, uh, part of the uh, the Coastal Studies uh, extended campus. Uh, so that's a big site up there. Is that 100 plus acres? I believe that's right. Okay. Uh, how do you keep track of everybody up there? We would be using a small portion of that of that whole area, but um, one thing that we love about it is that it does have um, that vast expanse of land, and it is um, wild forest land. I think that was one thing that was really important to us as we were thinking about this, that um, there's a major difference between being outdoors, you know, in a playground and being outdoors uh, in a forest where you are going to experience um, actual ecosystem at work. Uh, and, and the Wind Nature Center definitely has that, and it has a lot of opportunities to observe, do science, and um, be in the forest. Very good. Uh, now, as far as the, uh, the indoor uh, settings up there, so you mentioned that you're working on getting something uh, put up on location there. Uh, what does that look like? What, uh, what are the needs, and uh, what happens in the indoor settings? Those are questions that we don't 100% have answers to yet. Um, and like I said, we're in conversation with sort of both parties, the school district and coastal studies to, to see uh, what we can do there. Um, and so I think, I don't know if there's anything else we can say about that right now. Well, I think it, what might uh, be helpful is to kind of uh, paint our vision for what that space could look like yes, and how do. kids move through that space. Um, you know, for a long-term goal, we would imagine um, something like uh, outdoor pavilion uh, that would serve as a gathering space for the entire school. Um, we're also looking at a series of yurts as classrooms. Um, th there's another part of this here where people like to draw a line between okay, indoor space and outdoor space. But there's actually, um, there's some gray area there. And there even is gray area in the sense of the difference of, f of feeling of a student stepping in and out of, say, a yurt versus in and out of a concrete building that's, you know, surrounded by pavement. So we're thinking um, very much about what exactly the indoor space is and and how it relates to the outdoor space. And we do like the idea of yurts for that um, or other small structures that have things like, um, there's one structure that has a, you know, a sliding door that can sort of be a three-walled outdoor space or um, can become an indoor space. And so we're, we're still, like I said, looking at how we can use what's there and how we might work with them to be able to add to it. Very good. Uh, I spoke with uh, one of your other organizers, uh, Angela Head, on Monday about this, and she referenced uh, warming stations because the, the students will be spending so much time outdoors. So mm -hmm. a place to go in and uh, get out of the, the elements a little Absolutely. bit, get dry, mm -hmm. get prepared for the next, uh, the next portion of the day. Uh, let's see. So looking at the, uh, the campus up on Skyline and uh, still developing the plans for the, uh, the structures up there, let's 
let's delve into some of the uh, the nuts and bolts of the charter school itself. So we've got a couple of examples in the district already for uh, for how charter schools work uh, here. Uh, they are based around an APC, which is an Academic Policy Council. Uh, how does that work? Who is on that council? Who do they direct? What do they do? What are they responsible for? Sure. So a charter school, first and foremost, is a public school, and if approved and accepted, as we have currently four, four charter schools in the district, I think it's four or five, and one in this community, uh, a charter school um, becomes a part of the district. So it is a district school and therefore follows many of the similar funding models, um, you know, base student allocation, and uh, the different uh, state statutes that are set up for for operating public schools. Uh, and, and that's important because that also guides, you know, what it is that students are learning. And so our, our students at Homer Forest School would be working to meet Alaska state standards, and they would also take state assessments as well. And so that's all woven into our charter as to how that kind of balances with the how we do the learning. Um, and the ultimate approver of a charter school is DEED, who is the Department of um, Department of Education and Early Development. And so after uh, the local school district, if the lo local school district approves our charter to move forward, DEED has the ultimate, uh, the ultimate check on that. And um, that would be later in the, the winter, in, in the spring. Okay. So the question that you asked about the APC is a really unique uh, process. So the charter school uh, has a um, academic policy committee, and ours is the Homer Forest School Charter Council, which we are both currently on. on. And the charter council, or the committee, um, is sort of the checks and balances for the school. So the APC ultimately hires the principal, the school leader of the school, but once the principal is hired, they work in collaboration to support finding and recruiting teachers that would fit the, fit the, um, uh, the model, that charter school, and that might want to work there. And so the APC upholds the charter, really. It, it's, uh, it, it evolves, right? We currently have seven, uh, seven or eight voting members, and, uh, but that doesn't mean that we'll all be on that that. APC forever, right? It just like a nonprofit board, it evolves, and so therefore the school adapts and evolves with with the the parents and the families and the community members that are interested in being a part of that. So, is the APC uh, is that consisted primarily of parents? It's not all parents, but that is a significant chunk of it. Okay. Yeah. And and who selects the members of the APC? You know, I'll I'll say right out there that um, all of this was new to me. Um, we're, many we're of us on the <laughs> APC are, are learning how to be an APC as we're doing it. Um, and so for the beginning, um, it was all of this group that kind of had this idea and it happened organically. And then one day we had a vote and we voted each other on and all of a sudden we became an APC. Um, and then there are laws written out in our in our bylaws about how that happens going forward there are certain certain seats have uh, one year terms uh, others have longer terms and it's sort of all spelled out in the charter and in the bylaws okay oh, I would ahead. say that what's something really unique about it though is that because it is um, you know the APC uh, it's very it has the opportunity to be very community focused, right? So currently we have a lot of parents, but those, those parents also have other jobs or are focused in education in different ways, different passions and interests. And also some people are on the committee that are just interested in being a part of uh, 
building a new school up. And so I think it just it can take on a life of its own where, you know, people that are interested in being involved at this level, uh, there's an opportunity there for those folks. And so uh, we welcome questions about that as we learn more about that process as well. Great. Um, now, are there any other things that the APC does in addition to uh, uh, maintaining the charter and hiring the principal? Do they uh, do they continue to develop the the policies for the school? Does it uh, become a living document in effect? Yes. Mm -hmm. And there are some timelines for that, where you know a charter school has to go through charter school renewal uh, every few years, and that's a relationship with the state and the school board. But I think in, it ultimately sets the foundation for the school to move forward. Uh, but it continues in partnership with the school while in operation. Um, so you know, questions about curriculum, questions about how families are engaging with the school building those family engagements. There's just so many opportunities for the APC to be involved, but also to allow the principal that is hired to kind of take, take on the charter and say, this is what it looks like in reality. Great, thank you. Uh, last question, and we're gonna take a very short break here. Um, the funding, we, t we touched on that very briefly. So because it's a public school, uh, it works with the district for funding. Is it funded in the same way, like a, a set rate per, uh, per student? How does that work? Um, yes, it's it's a public school, and so the funding we receive is based on the amount of students that we have, and there are formulas spelled out um, for how that all works, and it's exactly like how it works in a public school. There's some variances to like the way that uh, where the the funds come from uh, for uh, staffing and facility and those types of things that a charter school is responsible for that a district school might uh, it might run from more of a top down approach but uh, for the most part uh, it, you know it's important to remember it's a state school and it's publicly funded yeah excellent okay we're going to take a short break here you're tuned into the coffee table on KBBI AM 890 in Homer and in Seward on K201AO 88.1 FM my guests are Kay Sturm and Dave Kaufman who are representatives of the Homer Forest School and we are taking questions this morning if you have anything you'd like to ask our guests about the uh, the new charter program give us a call 907-235-7721 you can also email your questions to me here at josh at kbbi Org, and we'll be back with you in just a couple of minutes.
This is KBBI Homer AM 890 and in on K201AO 88.1 FM. Good morning, I'm Josh Crone. I'm your host for the coffee table this morning, and my guests are Kay Sturm and Dave Kaufman from the Homer Forest School. Uh, the, they have their application in for the uh, charter for the Homer Forest School with the school district here. Uh, you can find the draft application on their website, homerforestschool.org. And uh, you're welcome to, to get on their website and check it out. It's uh, fascinating what's on there. Uh, they also have a survey uh, on how you can... Uh, well, tell me a little bit about that survey before we go on there, uh, Dave or Kay. So, uh, yeah, if you go to homerforestschool.org, you will see right up front um, there's a button that says... Get involved. Get involved. And that uh, takes you right to the survey um, for any families who think they might be interested in attending this school, it's it's not a commitment, it's not an enrollment, it's just an interest survey at this point. But we would encourage any families who um, thinks this sound interesting to go ahead and, and fill that out. Um, and that helps us and it helps the district just gauge where we are in the community and um, how we're going to fit in. Um, and then if you are interested in digging into the actual document and reading the any portion of the 150-page uh, charter that we've submitted that is also available on the website. And that's a draft, so it's continuing to change over the next couple weeks, but the most updated version will be available on the website for those of you that, that want to check it out. Excellent. And uh, we, we mentioned before we went to break there about uh, hiring for staff for the school, that the Academic Policy Council is responsible for hiring the principal. Um, and then is the principal responsible for hiring teachers? So the principal is responsible for hiring teachers, similar to how the district principals would, would uh, work to hire teachers for their school. But the APC would work in collaboration, in, in, uh, and we're actually currently working on what that language looks like, you know, coming up with a job description, really thinking about what, what it means to be a teacher at Homer Forest School. And one aspect of our application that I want to just point out is that our professional development section is uh, really intentionally thought out to think about how to support teachers in being able to bring the experiences that they already have, the education they already have, to our school, and then to be able to continue to work in an environment where they can grow and thrive as educators. And so uh, all of that would be built into the, the application process to demonstrate um, how teachers would be able to uh, to, to be supported as, as educators there. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, a burning question about any academic program that's uh, different from what we're used to is uh, how do you meet uh, the, the basic needs for the students? So there are uh, academic standards that the district has, and uh, how, do we, uh, how do we approach that with this kind of curriculum? There's not the indoor class time. Uh, how, how do they find the time to practice their handwriting, run through their arithmetic? How does that work? Sure. Uh, I think that it's a great question, and there is more and more mounting evidence that shows that, uh, for example, the PBL model is an ESSA-approved model, so federally recognized now there's more and more evidence coming out that supports that students um, can make huge gains in student achievement with, um, with that uh, inquiry-based, project-based model. And I think it's a, a misconception that we're always working to fight, right, is that you don't learn unless you're sitting in a classroom with a pen or pencil in your hand. And I think uh, the model that we are presenting and putting forward is that there's a balance of all things that kids need from the socio-emotional perspective of supporting their own understanding of themselves as learners to... Um, to digging in and learning how to read and how to do math, and then also thinking about how that 
looks in an authentic context, where working with your peers is not just playing with your peers, but how do you collaborate in a really functional way? How do you speak to adults and present your ideas and ask questions and do good research? Because ultimately, um, the state assessments, that's a lot of what they're looking for now, too, is those higher level thinking skills that, um, that permeate beyond the school day. And so uh, there's more and more evidence. And also, even in our state, we have some really, uh, really unique and incredible charter schools that are, and not just charter schools, public schools as well, all over the state that uh, are demonstrating that uh, when it comes to the state test, that they are in those high achievement uh, numbers, even though the model that they're, that they're choosing to approach learning with might look a little different from what we're used to. Great. Um yeah, are there are there other examples on this? Is this based off of a uh, uh, some other programs? Uh, are there are there successful forest school programs in the country? There are, and there are references to them in our application. I believe is that right? Um, and so it's a growing movement, and I do think part of this kind of uh, movement coming into the forefront more and more has to do with the last two years and people trying to figure out outdoor spaces generally. And um, as a lot of us tried to do that, um, some lights went off and, and people started to see that uh, this actually has some great benefits. And so the movement has been around for a long time and I think it's uh, having a bit of a moment right now. Okay. Um, so, and one more thing before we uh, step away from the standardized uh, uh, aspect of things. Uh, how easy is it for a student to transition into this program if they don't start in kindergarten and go K through eight in this program? What if they want to start in third or fourth grade? Are they going to have uh, an easy time getting into this and, uh, and adapting to the new kind of program? And on the flip side of that, if somebody moves away, how successful are those students going to be in a more traditional-based program? Yeah. Um, I think moving in, you know, it, it's going to totally depend on that student and that family. But we, we have thought about that, and we are prepared to um, help a student and also teachers. Um, there's, there's a lot in our application about how to, you know, prepare a teacher for being in the outdoor environment and doing that, which is different. But um, as far as students, yes, there may be a learning curve. We are also um, looking at ways to make sure that all in, uh, enrolled students and families have access to the gear that's necessary to keep somebody comfortable um, and happy in the outdoors. So I think it's going to vary student to student that there may be a learning curve there and we're prepared to, to uh, have that be part of the education. Uh, one thing I would just add is that I think the, the one thing that uh, we can say about kids of all ages is that they are incredibly adaptable and resilient and that they actually move through so many different spaces in their day and in their childhood where they are already making those changes, right? They are, when you go from one school to the next or one classroom to the next or from school to home every day. And I think when we, what we see in the outdoor environment with the younger kids the last few years, um, well, um, you know, ages birth to seven even, is that uh, there may be a period where students are unlearning or relearning or learning new, new habits, but the resiliency that, they, that, that comes from that is, is really what we're trying to, to get at. And so um, I think it's interesting as adults to think about your own memories and what memories took place outside, right? I think a lot of times we do remember things that took place outside, and those were either joyful times or maybe some of the hardest times you've ever had, <laughs> the challenges. And um, 
uh, they imprint themselves on our memories in a way that uh, a lot of, you know, personally speaking, like experiences that I had in school or a classroom might not have. And so uh, we want to create that environment where students can also uh, face challenges, yeah. And so they'll be supported along the way. Excellent. Uh, we have a, a couple of questions from a, a listener here. Uh, Melanie would like to know if there is any uh, uh, plan in place for kids with special needs, a mm. uh, Quest program or remedial programs or anything like that. How do you, uh, how do you handle that? Sure, I'll take that. Uh, so uh, actually quite a few of our APC members have backgrounds in special education, so this was at the forefront of our thinking of how to build a program that could support students on an individual level. And so uh, all students will be supported on an individual level in terms of their specific needs and strengths, especially during that indoor learning block that I mentioned. However, uh, our current model, we're hoping to have uh, one to two full-time special educators and an aide, and so there will be the human resources to be able to support students that might have um, need for extra adults in the classroom or extra support. And then um, also um, working with the family partnership. And so family partnerships is a huge part of how we want to engage with families uh, from the, from the get-go, whether you have a full-time student or a student in the blended learning. And so the, uh, the teams that always come together around um, working with students with special needs in, or even students that don't necessarily have a formal plan but need a little bit of extra support or attention or focus, um, that's really going to come from those family partnerships that, we, that we're hoping to create and forge from the start. And so from both a operational, having enough adults, as well as you know, the, the value of family connection, um, I think students of all backgrounds, all needs, will be able to thrive in this environment. Okay. Um, so that, uh, that leads me nicely into the next section here. Uh, how many teachers do you expect to have? How many students do you expect to have? And what is the ratio for teacher to student? What is the, uh, the separation? Is it by grade, or uh, do you have some other standard for that? So our current model, which we have adapted down slightly, um, based on some feedback that we got from the district, is for to open with 76 students, um, and that's 14 in kindergarten, 24 in 1, 2, 24 in 3, 4, and then we have 14 um, in what we're calling a blended learning program, which is sort of a um, something in between uh, school and homeschool, and that 14 is for all grades, K through 8. Um, we are aiming to have a full K through eight program um, in year two, but that's the model that we've set out. Um, I'll let you answer the ratio part of that. Sure. You asked about teachers to student ratio. Mm -hmm. So teacher to student ratio, if we're just thinking about general educator or lead educator for each grade level, the kindergarten has the, small, uh, has the smallest teacher to student ratio with just 14, and that was very intentional. Um, the grade pods, so one, two, three, four for year one, have 24 total students, but that's around 12 students per grade level. And with the other adults that we also have on our staffing plan, uh, more than likely, most environments will always have around two adults. So the formal answer to that question is 24 to 1, but the, uh, the reality is that students will be moving around with a lot of different adults throughout oh, the day. Excellent. Yeah. Um, let's see, another question from Melanie here about uh, some of the activities during the day. She'd like to know about uh, lunches. Will you be feeding the same meals that the other schools currently do? 
question? I think that's a question that um, we're still working on at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. And thank you for it. And it's uh, going to continue to be something that we're working on. Is, uh, do you have uh, some thoughts about where you'd like to go on that? Something you want to share? Um, no, there are a number of things that we just don't have answers for yet. And um, we're continuing to work through. Um, if we wanted to provide school lunches, we need a facility that um, has a commercial kitchen. Um, and, you know, some of the other schools deal with that in different ways. They get lunches delivered. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess I'll just say thank you for that question. And we're making notes and we're going to be able to answer that soon, hopefully. Great. Uh, one other question from a listener. Uh, she would like to know what, uh, what differentiates this program from our other charter school, Fireweed, here in town? I think, um, you know, we can answer that question by talking about what we feel makes us unique generally. Um, and so we can go down that list again. Um, certainly the emphasis on being outdoors and learning while outdoors, um, that's probably primary number one. Um, I think another thing that really makes our school unique is this goal to have a full K through eight community. Um, I think that uh, for whatever reason, the elementary schools in Homer have settled into a, a, a two-tiered uh, approach, and that seems to be working really great for lots of families, and we want to provide another option that is kindergarten all the way through eighth grade um, as a mixed age group. Um, so those are two things. And then I think the third is a really intentional um, thinking about how screens are or are not part of the learning. Um, I think that's another um, third thing that really makes us unique. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. We mentioned that at the top of the show, and you said uh, fewer screens accessible for students. Uh, what does the, the, the classroom environment look like then without, uh, without screens, since that's such a primary uh, point of education these days? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So uh, just, you know, evidence-wise, we've seen a huge rise. The pandemic had a big part of that with, you know, our need and our dependency on using uh, screens as a part of our education program. And there's a lot of curriculums and a lot of education programs that are very, very, very good and strong in their own right that are very screen-based. But what happens when you compound all those hours is that our students, uh, what we've found as parents and as educators is that our students are spending more and more time on screens just as a way to to, to interact and engage with school. And so that was something we intentionally wanted to uh, state in our charter because it's only going to we're only going to become a more technologically savvy and technologically dependent world as we move into the future. And so to be very um, upfront about that. And one of the things that I think could be helpful for listeners, because it really helped me sort of understand the difference between what screen use is and what technology use is, is to really think about our in engagement with technology as a hierarchy. There, you know, for example, right now we're using technology in a really, uh, in a really intentional, in-depth way to share information and to engage with other people that we couldn't have if we just had our own coffee talk, right? Um, and uh, so that is that that depth of understanding and learning and expertise that comes with being able to use technology in this way. And that's really the depth that we hope to be able to get to with our students when we interact with technology. Um, 
at sort of the top of that hierarchy is our uh, screen use, the way we just go to our phones or we go to the computer or let's just do this program here, right? So there's so many different tools out there. And so we're just trying to create an intentional environment where technology use is very targeted and it's about deepening student understanding of how we can use technology to be stewards in our community and for the environment. Great, thank you. Uh, okay, we've got about eight minutes left on the program. Uh, and a reminder to our listeners that we are taking questions. We have a couple more minutes if you want to call in and ask us any questions, 907-235-7721. You can also email me, josh at kbbi.org. Uh, last segment for the program here, I want to talk about uh, access to STEAM activities, uh, athletics, art, music, all of the uh, extracurricular things that... Uh, 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 accent our school programs how do we uh, how do we handle that here i would say um, that's something that we are still continuing to build out in our application um, as far as art goes i think that is something we need to build out more in our application but um, there is something in one of our we have a graduate profile um, with you know who who are we striving to graduate from this school um, and there's, there's something in there that I really like, which says that uh, a student that attends Homer Forest School uh, practices the kind of playful creativity which uh, brings joy and solves problems. And I think that art is really one of many ways that people can access their own creativity, and we hope to um, use that as one way as well as the, the other core disciplines um, that may mean artists in schools and Hopefully, it'll also mean you know a day-to-day -day, uh, program that we build out. Uh, you said playful creativity. Uh, let's delve into that. That's kind of a, a loaded phrase. Mm -hmm. What's that look like? I'll let the artist answer. <laughs> um, you know, I think that uh, what art has the potential to teach people is um, a way to approach problems in more than one way. Um, and when you are playful with your life, you stumble into um, things that you couldn't have imagined. Um, and art teaches that in its process, and we hope that um, our students will take that and apply that same type of uh, playful stumbling uh, to um, academic areas. And, and it, it just is a way that um, people's minds are broadened and you know, it's, a, it's a more comprehensive approach to problem solving. Do you direct the students through that? Um, I think that probably, I'm, you know, these are sort of vagaries I'm, I'm uh, getting into here, but I think a, a lot of that is individualized, um, and it's something that, that it's a process of self-discovery that's facilitated. Okay. I would also say that the time of the day that that happens is through project-based learning, because what project-based learning allows for is a variety of different types of products and goals that students work towards that are also aligned to what they're learning. And so some projects might focus more heavily on art, right? Other projects might be a STEAM-focused or a STEM-focused type of um, project where they're learning data collection and data analysis uh, partnered with a community member or expert, right? So there's so many different ways in which that learning block and that learning environment allows for students to get better at and discover those different aspects of themselves. Um, and in our application, we have that under integrated art and integrated music and integrated physical education. Rather than having it as a separate class, it is just a part of how we learn. 
Okay. All right, well, uh, I have with me in the studio Kay Sturm and Dave Kaufman. They are representatives for the Homer Forest School and their application is in with the school district right now and they're hoping to have this program up and running. Uh, I believe I was told uh, ready for school in the fall of 2023 for the 23-24 school year, is that correct? That's, our, that's the timeline that we're working on right now and our hope for the next month here. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Did I miss anything important in this conversation in our last three minutes? Yeah, I could add something. You know, we got the question about how do we distinguish ourselves from Fireweed, the other beautiful charter school. And I think um, one thing that often goes along with that is a concern about, you know, how we're going to affect all of the schools uh, with our enrollment. And um, I think it's important that we just address that and say that um, we are listening to those concerns um, and we have gotten some of that feedback and we have already made some changes based on that feedback, um, which included, you know, changing our initial enrollment of 115, scaling it down to 76. And ultimately, I think what people need to understand is that we're going through a process with the school district, um, and we're going through that process in good faith, and we're going we're gonna to let um, those committees and those people help us, and we're going to let those decisions be made through that process. Great. Uh, we have one more listener question that just came through here and would like to know how the forest school would accommodate kids with disabilities. What a great question. One of our core tenets in our education philosophy is accessibility and inclusivity in the outdoor learning environment. So this is actually a topic that we want to tackle head on. Uh, and we often, you know, there's a lot of really incredible programs. There's the Trails program, which I actually learned about on Coffee Talk. There's a lot of programs in our community that are looking at this from an adult perspective that we'd love to engage and learn from. But I think that, that uh, tackling that question about how to support students of all ability to access the outdoors in the way that is going to work best for them, as well as uh, to allow them to engage with this diverse learning environment is something that Homer Forest School is thinking about and planning into our facilities planning. We're thinking about it from um, you know, the, the financial aspect of it, and we're also thinking about it from a way in which to work with uh, families in, in making, making that um, accessible. And so I would encourage people individually, if that's a, a question for you, to reach out so that we can learn from each other and continue to, to make the outdoors more accessible for our kids. Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, homerforestschool.org is the place for uh, people to go to find more information, and they can reach out to you through the, uh, the website there. Is that correct? Yes, homerforestschool.org. And please, uh, you know, that's an open line of communication. We're all learning together, and we're really excited to share this with you. So we welcome your questions and feedback as well. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. My guests have been Kay Sturm and Dave Kaufman, representatives for the Homer Forest School. You've been listening to The Coffee Table here on KBBI Homer AM 890. It is 30 seconds until 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Line 1 Health Connection from Alaska Public Media coming up next. Taking a quick look at the weather for the western Kenai Peninsula for today. Snow likely and a chance of snow this afternoon. Accumulation up to one inch. Highs in the mid-30s to lower 40s. North wind 10 to 25 miles per hour. And in Seward today, rain. Rain could be heavy at times. A high near 42. East wind 15 to 20 miles per hour. Gusting to 20 mi 25 miles per hour. Thanks for tuning in to KBBI Homer AM 890. Have a good morning. <laughs>